the second you restrict something, um, it's like your brain automatically go kind of rebels, like, but I want it, but I want it. And then you see it and then you want it. And then when you finally let your guard down, which eventually, especially with carbohydrates, it will happen, uh, because your body again requires it for fuel. Um, then it can create, uh, an overeating, uh, obsession, uh, binge eating, um, episode just with carbohydrates. If, if you think about like we know what they, the role that they play within our brain and our bodies. Uh, so if we're not going to give it to them and then over time, it's just going to become heightened and heightened and heightened. Once, once you let the floodgates down, then it's like a free for all. And then you think that you can't be around that food. You feel like you, you lost control and then that creates a, a disordered type of mentality around it. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Welcome to this week's podcast. So this week, I got to have a delightful conversation with Caitlin Crotio. She is a, a dietitian. Um, she has experience in eating disorders. And we talk about lots of things, but we talk about carbohydrates. We talk about the importance of them. We talk about um, diet culture and how disruptive it is. And then at the end, we actually go to, on to talk about, which is one of my favorite subjects, is... Can people who have experienced an eating disorder be effective and safe eating disorder? Therapists, coaches, dietitians. So that's a really interesting question at the end. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Oh, but I should just add that we were joined by Yogi, Caitlin's little dog. So if you hear a bit of a bark, especially at the beginning, he does get better towards the end. That's just Yogi giving us his point of view as well. Let's start by getting to know Caitlin a little bit. The first question I asked her was to tell me a little bit about herself. Here's her answer. Sure. So I'm Caitlin, um, and uh, uh, professionally, I work with women. I'm a registered dietitian, and I work with women on helping them to uh, ditch the diets and to find a place of, of intuition related to food and body and movement. And uh, I'm also a yoga teacher, and I also have uh, a personal training certification. I've been a personal trainer for a long time, but no longer practice just one-on-one -on -one with people with that. Um, and personally, uh, I have a history of an eating disorder, and that has led me to a place of wanting to work with that population um, because they uh, are quite. It's quite needed to have more professionals working in that field. So right now, I'm I'm pursuing my master's in health education, specializing in eating disorders, and I'm done with all of the uh, almost one. I have one class left um, for the eating disorders portion, and there's been eye opening. I mean, you have your own experience, but then there's then there's the research, then there's the modalities for treatment, then there's the what do you do as a dietitian within this field, and all of that. So it's been really really eye opening. Interesting. Um, in, any examples as to as to how uh, or what might have been a really sort of eye opening moment for you? Oh, I think just getting outside of my own experience and and getting into what other people's experiences uh, could be. And uh, you know, I think that I've always seen the lens of eating disorders through my own eyes, and now I'm being asked to see it through you know everyone else's. Um, everyone has a different story and a different lens, and so it's about my ability to release my own story and um, know that that's just my story and to be able to 
really see it from, you know, my, my clients or friends or whoever I'm talking with um, perspective. And what, what, so what do you hope to do in the long run? Oh, that's such a great question, Tabitha. (laughs) Um, I have a lot of things that I want to do. I feel like I'm at a place where I haven't quite figured out, you know, what I want to do with the information. Uh, You know, part of me really wants to work within residential treatment. Part of me wants to work within outpatient. Part of me wants to do, uh, be involved with prevention, which I feel like that's what I'm currently doing is, is helping um, women to move away from the dieting mentality that can be uh, that can cause, it could be a, a, a part of the reason why somebody ends up with an eating disorder. For me, that's my story. So mine started with a diet and ended up with um, a few different eating disorders. They kind of transitioned into one another. And so I think what I'm doing right now is prevention, but I'd love to work even more with prevention and, and activism and uh, just really now now that I'm um, you know recovered, I feel like I can be in a place for myself to be an ally so whatever work I end up doing, that's my goal is to continue to be an ally for other people's recovery. There's there's a lot, I feel a lot, a lot of the time just because treatment is in such a dire place that men, men there's a lot of focus on, on just the sort of what I call the panic mode stuff, which is when someone's really sick, just stopping that person from dying, which is very needed. But, you know, it, an industry any industry also has to look at especially in healthcare sort of the other end and and the prevention part as as most healthcare providers know is sort of the starting part but often not somewhere that we can afford to focus right yeah it's it was interesting i was at a conference not too long ago and uh uh dr michael levine was talking and he's he's in prevention research and he was talking to us from a uh, society and from a cultural standpoint on how um, we as a culture and we as a society can help to create a preventative culture. And um, that's what he's looking at currently in all different avenues. Of course, I'm, I'm making it sound more simple than it is, of course, but, um, and, and how, you know, there's also this, uh, there's, there's a lot of research going on regarding, um, you know, genetics and, uh, what's going on there in terms of prevention. So it's quite interesting where, where prevention is going, I I would say. Mm -hmm. And for, yeah, for me, it's just how I'm choosing to see prevention is to be the change within myself, promote body acceptance, body positivity, not promoting the thin ideal, helping people to, you know, slash the thin ideal and to help people move forward because there's like a breakup process of that. that that's definitely a very important piece, but it extends it extends past um, sort of clinical eating disorders as well. I mean, mm-hmm. because all of those things can affect, actually affect the majority of the population. And sure. even if a person doesn't then go on to, they're not genetically predisposed to have an eating disorder, then they're, they're still affected by those things on a smaller level. And I don't say small to belittle it in any way. Yeah, uh, Dr. Michael Levine was talking about how when a lot of times we're thinking about prevention, we're thinking about the the small percentage of people that are that are genetically uh, predisposed. We're not thinking about the largest population, which are those that are kind of predisposed. But but what really can pull the trigger is society and culture and in our belief systems. So yeah, I agree 100. percent Sorry for my dog. <laughs> yeah, we have a, we have a third person on the call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Yogi, my rescue dog. <laughs> Yeah. And then I, I do actually just want to point out to people listening that 
Um, although this is an important part of, or it's a factor that does influence or trigger a lot of people that are predisposed to eating disorders, there are many of us that actually are triggered by non-diet and non-body image mm -hmm. things. Um, I'm one of them, so I'm always quite keen to point that out, although I know that the vast majority are triggered by going on a diet um, right. because of body image um, issues generated by the wonderful society that we live in that idealizes thin people. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand not everybody, that's not everybody's story. I, it's just my story, you know, it's, it's, and it's my story that, that eventually created the passion to work within this, this field. So of course I'm going to lean towards that, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not the same story for every single person. Yeah. And you know, but it is also, it is really, I mean, whenever I sort of think about it, it's, it's just almost so large that it's, if you think of it on the macro level, it's just like, wow, how do we actually change society's grand perception over what is a beautiful body or not? Um, it's much easier to think of it on the level of the individual and just working with one person to change that person's view of their own self. Mm -hmm. I know it feels overwhelming at times. And you know, at times I, I like lay there in bed before I go to, you know, go to bed and I say, am I doing enough? You know, of course, like I think that way, but, um, you know, I, I agree with you. Like, I think it's going to be like a, like a one person at a time. And the more of us doing this work, the more of us having these conversations, um, the more of us doing the research, like it we collectively can, can, I think, create it over time, but yeah, change takes a lot of time. <laughs> So anyway, I'd love to talk about the article in the HuffPost, um, and it was it was about carbohydrates. So maybe yeah. I'll let, maybe I'll let you um, run on that and tell us what the article was about because you were interviewed for it. <laughs> so really, carbohydrates have become uh, a pretty uh, hot topic. You know, should we have them? Should we not have them? And so really, Jennifer Rowland, who wrote the article on Huffington Post, uh, Four Reasons Why You Don't Need to Fear Carbs, According to Experts, is the title of it. And, you know, because these days, carbohydrates are like the fear food for pretty much the entire society. Like, I, I don't think that I'm being crazy when I say that. Um, you know, pretty much everybody that I work with has the same question, which is, are carbs okay for me to eat? And, and because of my background in nutrition, uh, I was taught, you know, way back, you know, seven years ago, the, the absolute importance of carbohydrates for the body, and especially for the brain and red blood cells. And the importance of, of managing your blood sugar obviously has to do with eating, not obviously, may not be obvious to everyone, but carbohydrates are, is what becomes um, your blood sugar. And so, and I, when I say carbohydrates, I mean whole grains, uh, fruits, um, you know, dairy contains some carbo some carbohydrates and, um, vegetables contain a little bit of carbohydrates as well. So when I say carbohydrates, that's what I'm meaning. And so I like to explain that to my clients because sometimes we think of carbs just as bread. And so it's, it's much larger than that. And, and the body really needs the carbohydrates because again, our brain is kind of the one that's deciding everything. So we want our brain to be healthy and our brain requires, I think there's like a minimum amount of carbohydrates. I don't really remember the, the amount of grams necessarily. It's over, definitely over a hundred grams per day. And so when people go on low carbohydrate, anythings, uh, what they're really doing is not allowing their brains to work effectively. 
And also we have carbohydrates stored in our muscles and in our liver, um, which is called glycogen. And so that is there for like reserves or when I'm using my muscle or um, when, I, when I'm sleeping, right? And our, my body needs fuel. So we have all these wonderful systems uh, in our bodies to allow our bodies to function the way that they need to do. So when you go, when you, when you decrease carbohydrates or don't consume enough or an adequate amount, your body is asked to go into a completely different cascade um, when it comes to the making of new glucose. And, and what the body can't do is just create glucose, but it creates something very similar to glucose, except for the, except for the fact that it's not as efficient. So when I think about you know, being kind to your body, and when I think about the role carbohydrates play, and because we know the role that carbohydrates play with our brain health and our ability to think clearly, um, you know, which can obviously affect our lives and our work life, our personal you know, relationships and all of that, and then how the brain is kind of in charge of the body in, in a way, um, you know, it's just we're being kind to our bodies by giving themselves what they need to survive, just like it needs protein and just like it needs you know, energy and just like it needs fats. So um, that's, that's kind of long story short. Um, about that article yeah and I agree with you that carbohydrates well most most people are still scared of fat but Mm. carbohydrates is another one especially bread um where do you think that came from oh my gosh I think that you know first it was like fat was the demon and and technically still um you know people do Still, there are people who do fear fats, especially the ones that are, you know, quote unquote, unhealthy fats or or the saturated fats. Right. And that's all talked about in the media. I think also if you think about like when the low carb diet came in, Atkins was like no bread, bread's the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with like South Beach, like you weren't allowed to have those certain foods. So I don't quite know exactly where everything where it came from, but I just remember like being in high school and the Atkins diet coming out and the South Beach diet coming out. And then all of a sudden, like we saw, you know, in our community, a lot of women were no longer eating bread, you know, pushing the bread bowl away from them at dinner and, and, you know, no, no longer eating sandwiches at lunch. People were having more of salads with, you know, processed meat on them and stuff like that. So it's just, it's just interesting how things evolve. Like I, I always, I wonder to myself, like what's next? You know, like what's what's going to be the next like terrible food to have, even though innately there is no bad food. Yes, amen to that. Um, <laughs> if, if you if listeners, if you take anything away from this episode, take that away. There is no bad food. Um, you know, actually, I, I, you mentioned there uh, women, um, and I, I agree that I think initially it was more women that would push things away. But now with the carbs, I mm-hmm. in my social circles at least it's actually more the guys that if the sort of doing the maybe it's just because i live in boulder i don't know but <laughs> a lot of them are doing the gluten-free stuff and the, mm. like a lot of the guys that i work with are sort of like oh i'm not eating bread this week and but <laughs> what but they maybe that's f- f- because for them that's a lot easier for them than not eating a ton of protein or, or meat because none of them seem to be at all interested in not eating those things, <laughs> at least mm-hmm. the guys that I work with anyway. I find that interesting. It's like, oh, I have to choose something to not eat, so carbs will be it. Right, yeah, I think as uh, the, the diet culture in general or, or our culture in general in the U.S., um, there's always, you know, if I'm not avoiding anything, there's something wrong with mm-hmm. me because everyone's on something, you know, you're either gluten-free or you're low fat or you're paleo or you're vegan or you're whatever. It doesn't even matter what it is. And I, of course, I know that um, people can 
can follow a vegan diet for ethical reasons. I totally understand that. Um, however, I think that if it's like, I'm like, I'm like a weirdo in this society because I don't restrict myself with anything. Like I had a friend actually text me the other day. I was going up to see her and spend time with her and her husband and their child. And she said, do you have any food restrictions or anything that you're avoiding? And I said, no. And I was like, wow, I'm so surprised. Like I, I after all these years, I'm so happy that I can finally say no, but I feel like I'm definitely, you know, a weirdo in the society with that. I'm especially, I'm with you in that weirdo category living in Boulder. (laughs) I mean, most of our restaurants here in Boulder have a separate menu for the gluten-free menu, the vegan menu, the dairy-free menu. And I'm usually the person, the only person at the table that's just eating off the usual menu. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, can I have the regular one, please? But I mean... There are people with celiac disease that need the gluten-free menu, so I'm I'm thankful for that for people who have celiac disease. I'm thankful for those people who are able to go out to eat um, and not have to fear getting sick or becoming sicker. So I love I love that fact, but I think that it's become mainstream. <laughs> so, um, and you know the, the the percentage of the population that are actually celiac is so low, right? Um, you know it's. And also, I do have a friend that's celiac, and most of the gluten-free offerings are not actually things that she can eat because... They're prepared. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, right? So, very yeah, she can't go to those restaurants either way. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it it seems like the gluten-free thing has become, like, almost like a fear thing. Like, like something bad's going to happen if I consume, you know, wheat bread or, um, you know, it's going to cause you know, inflammation. And I understand that like inflammation can cause disease. Like I, I can intellectually understand that. Um, but how have people been able to eat gluten, you know, way back when, (laughs) um, and not feel sick all the time? Like, I just have to wonder, I know some people are sensitive to it. And and then there's like the food sensitivity test, sensitivity testing or food intolerance testing. And that can become a source, a, a source of, well, this test says that I can't eat this. And I think that that can become, harmful to some human being. I'm just going to cut in there with some more thoughts on this issue because the whole gluten-free sensitivity testing, intolerance testing for people with eating disorders is something that, well, it irks me actually. Um, So I know this one sufferer, she's now in her late 60s and her eating disorder was sparked because of stress that she was going through in her sort of early 40s and then she developed IBS and after a couple of years of not eating properly and also suffering IBS, she went for sensitivity testing. And the testing came back that she was allergic to gluten, she was allergic to dairy, she was allergic to this big long list of foods. So she cut out those foods which fed her eating disorder. Sorry about the pun there, but it's true. She's able to restrict even more because there's this list of foods that she can't eat. And guess what? The IBS didn't get better. It got worse. Long story short, she goes a couple of years later, far too long later, sort of late 50s, goes into um, eating disorder recovery. She starts eating all of these foods that she's been told she can't eat again, um, just out of desperation, thinking she has to get well and she has to start eating them. And good for her for going against that information that she shouldn't have eaten them. Because guess what? With right restoration, her IBS got better. So I do think that there's a lot of symptoms that can be put down to a food intolerance that are actually should be put down to malnutrition. But anyway, 
what do I know? I'm not a doctor, not a professional, but that's just my point of view. Okay, the next thing that I asked Caitlin was um, to tell me a little bit more about the article that we were talking about in the HuffPost, and this is her answer. Um, I talked about how, I mean, there was there was basically, I'm trying to see how, there's about four, four parts of this article. One of them was um, carbohydrates as the, as the body's main source of fuel, which, which I touched on when, when we just chatted about it. But also, it's um, carbohydrates can help boost your mood, right? Because they are they um, are needed in order to make serotonin, right? It makes serotonin is a hormone. It makes us feel calm and relaxed. And this is um, being quoted by Rebecca Scritchfield, who's a dietitian um, and an author of an upcoming book called Body Kindness. And um, so, you know, when we go on low carb diets or we, when we cut back on carb- when we cut back on carbohydrates, uh, what can happen is a lot of people get moody, they get cranky, they don't feel like they can think clearly or they have not control of your emotions because, you know, that's definitely not something that we need to promote. It's control. Um, but I think that, you know, it makes total sense. Whenever I've done anything like that back in, back in my days of struggling with my relationship with food, I just remember how terrible I felt and how my mood was directly related to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the second part, kind of tenet of it. And the third one is carbohydrates <laughs> add satisfaction and pleasure to the eating experience. Um, you know, it provides again, important fuel to the body, but, um, you know, without <laughs> carbs, meals tend to be a little bit less satisfying. Right. And, and oftentimes if we don't eat carbohydrates with our meals, we end up, you know, I have a lot of people who say, um, midday, they have this crazy slump. And then I always ask them, what did you have for lunch? And nine times out of 10, they're missing the starch or the carbohydrate of some sort. So um, it can lead to this, you know, kind of obsession or this intense craving for what their body was asking for, you know, at lunchtime. But now it's really asking for it in midday because you haven't given your body what it needs in terms of the energy. Um, And then the last one was um, how restricting carbohydrates can create a disordered relationship with food. So like cutting out pretty much anything. Um, can create a disordered relationship with food. Oftentimes, it can be fueled by the fear of what happens if I start eating this food again. Um, what does that mean for me? Eth- you know, from my own ethical standpoint about who I am. What does it mean about my ability to? You know, we have this idea that we can control everything about our food, and so I just think it can create. And you know, they talked about a lot of different dietitians weighed in on this um, because what can happen is is the second you restrict something. Um, it's like your brain automatically go kind of rebels, like, but I want it, but I want it. And then you see it and then you want it. And then when you finally let your guard down, which eventually, especially with carbohydrates, it will happen, uh, because your body again requires it for fuel. Um, then it can create, uh, an overeating, uh, obsession, uh, binge eating, um, episode just with carbohydrates. If, if you think about like we know what they, the role that they play within our brain and our bodies. Uh, so if we're not going to give it to them and then over time, it's just going to become heightened and heightened and heightened. Once, once you let the floodgates down, then it's like a free for all. And then you think that you can't be around that food. You feel like you, you lost control and then that creates a, a disordered type of mentality around it. Absolutely. I can attest to that for sure. Um, when I was Same here. Yeah. That was a big cycle for me. Um, and I see, I see it in people all the time and then a lot of people will say something like I can't even have bread in the house because if I have bread in the house I'll eat the whole loaf and it's like well if you have bread in the house always you get used to having bread in the house and you'd have a couple of slices every now and then or whenever you felt like it and you wouldn't need 
to eat the entire loaf. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I try to, um, parallel, I, I try to, when I'm talking about like different foods, I try to parallel it with, um, like a, a, a different type of experience. So like if, if I only get to see my friend twice a year, um, with one of my best friends, when I hang out with her, I'm going to hang out with her. I'm going to have my phone off. I'm, I'm, we're going to be seeking out doing a lot of activities together. Right. And so it is because I'm not around her very often, but if I were to see her every day, um, it would be a different circumstance. You know, we might be able to see each other for a minute or two or whatever. So I try to think about things in like a, um, a non-food way just to parallel it and make it a little bit, um, under, you know, a little bit more understandable because we do hold these pretty deep beliefs about certain foods, you know, based on something we've read or something we've been taught or something that we've been, um, that we've been, uh, advised to do or not do. And, um, so for me, it's like when, when it's something, when something's around me all the time, I'm like a little bit like not numb to it, but like, it doesn't really matter to me. Like if someone were to say like, what color is your couch? I could probably tell you, but it's not like I've been focusing on it. It's just been around. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's kind of how I like to explain it sometimes. Yeah. I like the friend analogy there. <laughs> Actually, if anything like me, if I, if I'm around someone all the time, I just kind of, I, I get sick of them. <laughs> I don't right? even want them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like not a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, and they become, it's, it's less, it's like less sensitized. It's less, it's less exciting. It's less of uh, a once in a lifetime situation when something's around you all the time. Yeah. And isn't there some part, aren't our brains sort of wired to do that with food so that we, different types of food, so if we get easily sort of sick of one food all the time and we, I thought I read somewhere that our brains are sort of wired to make us go for variety. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, variety, regardless if it's in the brain and, and a psychological thing, it's like the spice of life, right? Like we don't, just like, we don't, we don't necessarily want to do the same thing day in, day out at our job. We like that there's a slight variety, if nothing else. There's a slight variety in what we're doing. We don't want to necessarily be around the same people day in, day out, day in, day out. We want to see a little variety. So I think what we, what we seek in life, we are also seeking in our food. Like we want variety. We want different tastes. We want to see different types of human beings in the world. We want variety in all aspects. And I would say, if nothing else, what I've, what I feel like the pattern is with with nutrition science and what the research is showing is that eating a variety of foods is always the answer. <laughs> um, like when it comes to gut health, eating a variety of fruits and vegetables, eating a variety of all sorts of foods. Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, I, and I think also like we can get really, really bored with what, just like what, what you're saying. Like a lot of my clients are worried that if, if they do make certain foods okay for them, the fear is that I'll be completely out of, out of control with it and I'll never stop eating it. And so I always acknowledge that. Like, I totally understand that. I get that. Um, I've been there right there with you. And then I always say, but do you really think in reality that you will? Like, what do you think that you would feel like if you ate cupcakes all day? What do you think you would feel like if you, you know, just ate a loaf of bread for the day? Like, what do you think that you'd feel like if you just ate chicken all day or just vegetables all day? So I try to relate it back to that because I feel like it's like, well, no, of course I wouldn't do that. So it's like, okay, we're starting to let down those, those fear-based walls. And that's a, that's a huge one. Those, those after somebody has put themselves on any kind of restrictive diet, I probably get at least one email a week about this. Um, somebody will be saying, I, I know I need to start eating whatever it is, carbohydrates, dairy, 
Um, I know I need to come off my self-inflicted vegan diet in order to get healthy again. But I'm terrified of what will happen when I allow myself to eat X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's a real, it's like people can mentally grasp that, okay, mm-hmm. I need to do this thing. But taking that step is is something that they find incredibly difficult. Yeah. And that's where therapists are so helpful. And that's where food exposures are so helpful, where you're sitting with a, a professional who, who specializes in eating disorders and you sit with that person and you pick one, one food that you would love to be able to have, right? It's not like you don't want to have it. It's that you feel like you can't have it. Um, and so you pick one thing that they really want to, to have and you work through it with them in front in a safe, in a safe space so that you're not sitting by yourself doing that activity. You're sitting with someone who you can process it with, who you can, who you can talk it out with, who you can express how you're feeling with in a safe space. When you said that about sort of things that you, you want to have, it, it made me remember um, that when I was sick, a lot of the time I w- I couldn't even admit to myself that I actually wanted to eat the foods that I wanted to eat. Mm-hmm. So I do think that's one step of actually being able to say, I'm not eating bread, but I want to. Whereas I would always say, I don't like it. Don't like bread. Don't want to eat it. Right. You know? um, well, I mean, Carolyn Costin talks a lot about uh, the eating disorder self and the healthy self and how when someone is 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 sick, you know, with an eating disorder, um, their eating disorder self is profound and their healthy self is really quiet. And so therapists, dietitians, uh, medical doctors, you know, psychiatrists, whoever it is, that's part of your team. Um, we become your healthy selves for you, um, during that process. And, and as, and as you continue to do the work and as you continue to work with your team, um, the goal is to have the healthy self, uh, louder, um, than the eating disorder self. And so that transition obviously takes, can take quite a long time, but, um, yeah, I just remember her, I went to a conference where she spoke and that, that was, you know, a, a nugget that I was really holding on to was, uh, you know, the treatment team becomes the healthy self for you with you while you transition, um, that, that scaling of the eating disorder self and the healthy self. Yeah. You know, actually, Caitlin, there's there's a question that I do want to ask you, and sure. it's um, because I'm actually known for uh, stating and blogging, and I have said a few times that I don't think it's often wise for people who have had a serious eating disorder themselves to go into being therapists for it, um, mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, but... You know, I always am somebody that's quite happy to say I was wrong about that as well. And, you know, I can tell from talking to you that you sound very recovered and you sound like your head is absolutely in the right place um, for helping somebody else get through such a thing. But I was just wondering, you know, if I said that to you, you know, why, why would I trust you with my child? Why would I trust you with myself if I was in recovery? Um what would you what would you what would your answer be to that how you know do you do you have one is that something that you thought about that's a really great question um and it depends you know in the scenario uh I, it is it is absolutely uh it depends on who you work for what you know which treatment uh facility company whatever that you're working for if they want you to disclose that or not um but 
with my clients is I'm not, I'm working with people who I would tech, I would, um, categorize as, as a disordered eating because of the mentality around food. Um, but they do not have eating disorders, but however, um, speaking with someone who does it first off, it would depend if I would disclose that or not. Um, how would it help them? How would it hurt them? Is it just coming from me wanting to relate to them? Is it coming from me wanting to say, Hey, I've been where you have, even though we've been in different places. Um, so, and I, I will preface with thankfully, um, and the reason why I think I'm so passionate about prevention is because I was so thankful to, to have some little sort of intuitive nature within myself to know that what was going on was not healthy. Mm-hmm. And, and that happened fairly early on. And, uh, so I'm, I'm fortunate to say that I was not, um, you know, and I, I don't like to say sick enough. I don't like to say those words because it, it doesn't quite, un- uh, to me, it doesn't quite matter to me. I knew where the mentality was. I knew where it was going. I was, you know, I thankfully didn't have to be, um, I didn't have to go into a weight restoration program. I didn't have to go to a residential program. I was managed outpatient. Um, you know, and, and really I was the one who caught it. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, so I'm really thankful for that. So, what would I say to somebody who said, you know, why, why am I able to do this work? Well, I, I've been, I've been removed from, from the mentality itself and from the disordered, uh, the eating disorder itself for about 10 years. And that doesn't mean that I'm recovered for the rest of my life, right? I hope that I am. Um, but I think it's my ability to, to, to first off, understand nutritional science, which is the basis of, of what I do. The other part is the education that I've received so far, which is uh, 15 graduate credits of just learning with eating disorders. My next step is to do my clinical time, which is 120 hours of, of working in the field supervised. Um, and the other aspect is that I, uh, I would have a therapist. I would have someone to work through things with so that things that, you know, there's always is like some leftover stuff going on. I, I always say that like the angel devil mentality that I had in my head for quite a long time, it's not that it's necessarily gone a hundred percent away. It's just that it's very quiet. Mm-hmm. But if I ever noticed it bubbling up, I would know that I would absolutely need to seek super, you know, I would need to, and, and anyways, I'd need to have supervision and I'm not a therapist. I'm a dietitian. The other part is, is that, um, you know, I would have a good treatment team. I would have a good support team, uh, to work within. I would be honest with them. Um, if, if for some reason they didn't want me to be honest with the client, uh, with the patient, whatever, with, with the family member, but really, you know, I think that for me, it's a strength that I have, I can have empathy, uh, for people that I work with at the same time, my experience does, my experience does not, give me the, the opportunity to work with someone with an eating disorder. It's my, it's my knowledge. It's my education. It's my, it's my passion. Um, it's the research that I do. It's, it's not because I had one that gives me the, that gives me the right to work with someone with an eating disorder. So I always like to make that clear that just because I've been there doesn't mean that I've been in your shoes. And I actually, I have never been in your shoes. So tell me your experience instead of me taking it from the lens of my own. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I think I think that's a really great answer. And actually, I'll tell you a secret, and we're going to be telling everybody. A secret. <laughs> you know, the reason I I sort of made that statement initially was actually just to get people talking about it. I have no doubt that you can very safely and um, effectively treat people um, as a dietitian. But mm-hmm. and and I also have no doubt that some people who are long time recovered can make fabulous therapists but I felt that nobody was really talking about the fact that sometimes people who are not 
fully recovered, go mm-hmm. to go into therapy. And I have heard plenty of stories of people being treated by such a person and coming out worse than they went in. And so, you know, sometimes I do make large blanket statements just to kind of draw attention to something and get people discussing it. Um, That was one of those. Um, Yeah. I do think it is something that needs, the question sort of needs to be asked because when it's not asked, then we're not on the lookout for the problems that can be caused. Um, Absolutely. And I've been in multiple interviews um, with different uh, treatment facilities where um, they've asked me, so do you have any food restrictions? Or they'll ask me, you know, what's your philosophy on food personally? And so they're asking the question. They're just not asking it, you know, um, <laughs> tell me why you're recovered. You know what I mean? But they they ask it in a way that, you know, if I did have any stuff bubble up, I would notice it with myself and I would want to take care of it because I think for me to be effective and uh, within this population, I, I have to be recovered, right? I mean, there is no... There, it's like you need to be the person that is role modeling a healthy relationship with food, and you can't cover that up. I, I don't think I can't. At least I can't cover that up. <laughs> no, I agree, and that's. I think that is so important. You really do need to be that that role model. Um, yeah. Somebody that people are going to look to and think, okay, well, this person manages to eat all the things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she seems fine so mm-hmm. maybe I can eat all the things you know yeah I had a I had a um a woman that I sat down and had lunch with and this is not somebody who is is necessarily you know in the eating disorder field it's not somebody who's a therapist within the field um at this time and one comment that she said to me she I, I told her that I had um I have a history of an eating disorder and she said um I wouldn't, I would have no idea now you are so, it's so nice to eat with you because she struggles with her relationship with food. And she Mm -hmm. said, um, it's just nice to sit and have a meal with someone that makes the, makes the meal so normal. So that was like, oh, nice. Good. I hope so. You know, I hope like a huge compliment. (laughs) Yeah, it was, I, you know, it was very, um, I, I didn't expect anything, any type of comment to come out like that about it. We were just, you know, just talking and and learning about one another. And I thought that that was a really nice way of like the universe saying like, yeah, like you are completely there. I know that you think that you are, but look, like you really are. <laughs> it really is something when those of us that have suffered with eating disorders for a long time and work through them, it's great to be able to go out and just be very casual about food and even have people tell us how casual we are about food. It's, it's really something to aspire to. The next thing that I asked Caitlin was how you can find out more about her. And I'll just say here that I'm going to link in the show notes to this episode to all the things that we mentioned, the HuffPost article and um, Caitlin's blog. Sure. So um, I run a website called Finding Body Freedom. Um, So it's findingbodyfreedom.com. And um, I also have a podcast and it's called Finding Body Freedom. And uh, we talk about um, eating disorders. I talk with different, you know, uh, uh, experts, dietitians, people who have been been through an eating disorder before, but also like any type of disordered eating, any type of um, exercise addiction, anything in related, you know, anything in relation to finding your own your own body freedom. And that's kind of how I called my journey to myself, which which was me finding body freedom and really freedom within my mind. Um, so I run that website. I write blog posts. I, I do. I, that's where I put the podcast and all that. Um, and then 
all of the socials, again, social media, um, finding body freedom is going to be my uh, handle. So I'm just going to slice in here a part of the conversation that Caitlin and I had after we'd officially finished recording. I hope she doesn't mind, but I actually thought it was really relevant to what we've been talking about before and that I wanted to put it in so that people could hear it. So here's a little bit of a cut in to the after conversation. It's like, I just think of eating disorders as part of the medical field, right? I mean, this is, this is, it's just like, you know, it's similar to depression, similar. I just try to keep everything in like this, not level playing field, because obviously eating disorders are like the number, they're the number highest mortality rate within all mental health illnesses. But, um, you know, you wouldn't want to have a surgeon take out your gallbladder if you, if he wasn't specialized in it. You know what I mean? So it's like, why are we allowing anyone to be treating anyone without one, some type of screening process? I don't know how we would even do this, but a screening process to make sure that your relationship with food and body is a healthy one. Yes. Um, Yes. Which I don't know how to create that. Somebody's got to figure this guy out because it's just, it's not okay. These people are really sick. It really is not okay. This is definitely a medical field that needs more regulation. And there's a lot of advocacy groups working to try and get that. Um, If you are interested in advocacy, then, hey, you can reach out to me. There's links on my blog as well. International Eating Disorder Action is an advocacy group that's got a great Facebook presence. And um, I'm a part of that one. Um, You can also get involved with World Eating Disorder Action Day. And a lot of the things that we're fighting for is, is better policies around these issues. Thank you for listening. And Big thanks to Caitlin for being such a good sport. Um, I did ask her some pretty difficult questions right off the fly, and I think she handled them like a champ. I certainly will link to all of the resources that she mentioned, including her own blog, in the show notes to this episode. So get on and and check her out, maybe learn a little bit more. I think that she's one to watch in this field. Um, I think that she's got a great insight as to the inside mechanisms, the workings of um, eating disorders and disordered eating. And I think that she also has the passion to sort of really attack it and go somewhere and try and do that prevention style change that we spoke about at the beginning so yeah definitely want to watch thanks for listening um if you are in an adult in recovery or a adult who is looking after somebody in recovery maybe administering family-based therapy then i recently set up a slack forum for adults in eating disorder recovery so if you are interested and you would like to take part in being a member on that forum it's by invite only but if you email me um, my email address is info info at tabitha farrar t-a-b-i-t-h-a-f-a-r-r-a-r.com and ask for an invite then i can invite you there i'm hoping that's going to be a place that people in recovery of all sorts um, can get together and, and help each other so yeah if you're interested in that then reach out to me for more information Cheers. And until next time, cheerio. Thank you. That was fabulous. Thank you. And um, how about Yogi? How's he doing now? (laughs) Oh my gosh, he's cool as a cucumber, of course. He's, oh my gosh, how did he get my toothbrush? Where did you find that toothbrush? That's why he's quiet. (laughs) Yes. How did you find a toothbrush? Oh boy. Yeah. It's like having a toddler.
<laughs> but but not because I haven't had a kid yet, so I cannot say that. Oh, there he is. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm hungry for dinner. 